Hey folks, it's Blamo. I'm Jeremy Kirkland, and I'm here. We're here, you're here, we're all here, we're doing the podcast. I sit before you uh, enjoying the end of summer. Thank God. I mean, jeez. I'm just not a summer guy, I'm a fall guy. I like the apples, I like the pumpkins, I like the layers, I like the leaves. You know, I'm, I'm very anxious to start putting, to get, to get those, uh, those overcoats on and, and getting my layers going. Um, what, what's been happening this week? My do- oh, geez, my daughter started kindergarten. Wow. Uh, they're growing up, man. Days are long, but the years are short. Whatever. I dropped her off and every day I walked away. Um, dude, I was, I was mad emotional. I was crying. I was a bit teary-eyed just dropping my little girl off at kindergarten. And uh, I couldn't, you know, you can't go in the school because they keep the school on lockdown. Um, like any school these days, you know, guns and stuff, which is whatever. We're not going to get into that. But it was just, it was hard to watch her go away. But man, every day she did, she just was like, see you, dad. I was like, dang, it was heavy. Um, You know, and I was trying to find ways to just kind of chill out a bit because it's like kind of tugs on the old heartstrings and you're like, man, I need, I need to veg. And lately, man, I've just been going nuts on old cartoons. Actually, that's, that's a lie. They're not old cartoons. They're just cartoons in general. You know, I mean, I wasn't watching Looney Tunes, but I was definitely watching, um, I started rewatching Boondocks. Um, I mean, just so much great, great cartoons. And, and uh, it was great. I felt, I felt good. It was like, I, I, I was back to normal, back to the slapstick reality of, of, uh, <laughs> of, of incredible television, um, which kind of brings me to my guest this week. Big, big old pod this week, just a massive guest and one that was an absolute honor to record with. Mr. Nick Weidenfeld. So if, if you're a Time Crisis guy, if you're a Ezra Koenig dude, if you're a Neo Yokio person, if you're a any person who's watched anything on Adult Swim or or Jesus and Marrow, somehow you've you, this this gentleman's come into your orbit. Uh, Nick Weidenfeld, he's a writer, he's a TV producer and television executive. He's helped develop and produce many of all of our favorite shows, from Rick and Morty and Robot Chicken to Boondocks and Children's Hospital. Uh, and Jesus and Mero, Neo Yokio, Ten Year Old Tom, which is already on. It's currently on HBO in their second season. I mean, it's there, there's just a insane multitude of entertainment that this guy has been involved or somewhere near. And uh, we we chatted. It was it's crazy. We actually chatted for like I think we chatted for like three and a half hours. I mean, it was just a banger of a pod. Uh, and so obviously we edited it quite a bit because you know I was probably riffing and sounding like a goofball, which I am doing right now. But um, Nick and I, we discuss his life and career, working at Adult Swim, imposter syndrome, lots of good discussions on that, giving good feedback and good notes, his love of Faulkner, the appeal of animation, the greatest cartoons of all time, getting fits off, design with constraints, and what show is the closest to his personal sense of humor. It's Blamo, Nick Weidenfeld. We're doing it. Let's go. So... I will say from the very beginning, I've had many people on the show and usually at the end of a pod, I'm like, hey, you know, thanks so much for doing this. If there's someone you like recommend that I chat with or, or a fan that you would always want to have on, please like let me know. And this is all it's, it's always this is on the record. But that question I always ask people is off the record. And you're like the number one person since I'm pulling up my Apple notes. 2018 people are like, yo, do you know Nick Weidenfeld? Yo, oh, you should talk with Nick Weidenfeld. Swear, swear to God. Um, I'm, and not, now that I'm not flattered, but who? 
I just can't even imagine I'm on. I can't imagine that I'm on anybody's record other than, you know what I mean? Store, I would have thought maybe like who could possibly, I mean, I, I'm so gold by that, but it is, I do feel like I've done whatever I've done. Well, cause you're so, mysterious, so, but you're the person that's but, the source. And this is cause like when I told oh, my man, wife, who's a big, she's a big comedy junkie. She's the one who I will credit turned me on to all of the, all of the like, I don't know. I don't know how to categorize this sort of comedy. So excuse me for sounding sure. ignorant, uh, but like I mean, the kind of like totally like off the wall slapstick, like bizarre, like Tim and Eric style, yeah. absolutely stuff. She was very into it and where I was like, I don't, you know, I don't understand. Like I get Monty Python, but I don't get this sort of stuff. And you know, so all Adult Swim, which was basically at that era, especially in our relationship, was all you. Um, I mean, I want to be clear. I, obviously, there was a team. There was other yes, people. But like, oh, you I were, was certainly present for that for those that era. Yeah. You know, all, all of these shows. I mean, while we're talking, you have a, a moon and night, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, on, you know, the, you know, the, you know what that is. Do you even wait, know what, what that is? This is like this is history. This is legit history. This movie. Okay, flex on flex. Let's 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 hear. It. Well, so this is the like. Do you know about the Boston city bombing? Oh my so, god! Yeah, so I do remember in, this. In like, I think it's two thousand six. I believe it was when we were making the Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie. Yes, there was a promotional campaign where <laughs> we had these light brights. There were they're okay. light bright. So there's the light right behind me is of a Moonanite, which is a character from Aqua Teen Hunger Force, which is a little pixelated, yeah. you know, alien that comes down and that, you know, throws the middle finger, right? And so Ignignockener is their name. And so they made these like magnet tiles mm -hmm. that were, yeah, just like juiced up lights, light brights. And if you attach them to metal things, they would light up. And so they put a street team to go put them all over the city. But in Boston, there was one that was put, and so these were in a couple of places, but it took the sort of, <laughs> it took a Boston mind, a Bostonian mind to go, this yeah. is a, to call that was attached to a bridge. And it was, and someone called and said, there's a bomb on the bridge. And the bomb is just this pixelated light right over this guy giving, you know, the middle finger. Yeah. The little cute character. And they shut down the city of Boston. <laughs> they shut it down. Helicopters, they shut it down. There's no one's going outside there. We found three more of these bombs all over the city. People were free. I mean, basically the city of Boston sued Cartoon Network and Adult Swim for a million dollars or whatever, like uh, the damages, which I yeah, think yeah, it yeah. was something like a million dollars. People were people got fired. Oh, no, the people, it was not funny. I mean, okay. to us, it was very funny, but it yeah. was not funny. And like the top brass were like, this is insane. This is uh, out of control. Who okayed this? And you're like, it's just a, this is like also in street teams are probably, this is just yeah. a clever street team. This is the bomb. This is one of the bombs. <laughs> so it's a tattoo. So that, that Moon Knight, that's like, but this thing is of a, what I think, and what was so hard to tell anybody was like, guys, I think we might have the best. This is a dumb movie that no one is going to ever see. <laughs> like we made, and we, I think we released it in like so many theaters. I just like, it was so crazy. Like art, like we're, this was like adult sim probably at its greatest and most like out of the box, you know, mm -hmm. like let's just, let's go do just wild shit. Let's make this cheap movie and let's put it in like 30,000 theaters and like, let's like treat it like a real movie. And then this comes out and people are like, you know, they already didn't really respect us within the company. And they were like, you know, 
take your toys and go back home. They, I mean, people were pissed. And for me, I was like, I think we might have just had the best marketing campaign maybe in the history of television. But if you go yeah. up and you look up, go, you will look up, do like Aqua Teen Hunger Force Boston bombing. Dude, that's, that's the thing. I mean, yeah, wow. you can see it. Yeah, it's, that's, it's, that's, that's better than the Academy Award than the Emmy yeah, than any of that stuff. <laughs> I mean, so, so much better. <laughs> You're kidding. It's all yeah. that matters. I can't believe I got one of these things. Yeah, they give work. Emmys to fucking meteorologists. All right, yeah. let's. Uh, yeah, let's get let's get real. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's crazy. But yeah, yeah, I mean the all of that that like animation stuff. I think especially now, where as I'm older, I'm like overwhelmed by the amount of content. And so, if I mm. could, I like I've just been revisiting old animation stuff and then also like a lot of the newer things that are coming out that I think are even better to where and I don't know if it's a, if it's easier on production I mean we can talk about that stuff later but it's just it's gold you know I mean Robot Chicken Boondocks yeah um Rick and Morty I mean Rick mm -hmm. and Morty I think was one of the first for many people TV shows that like entered the lexicon of people that didn't watch animated stuff like the people yeah. that were watching Rick and Morty, the last animated stuff they watched was like Animaniacs when they were 10 and the jokes went over their head. Having been involved in that and developed that, that definitely has kind of changed the course of my life, even just through its affiliation of making the, you know, developing it and making the pilot. You know, I think that it, people do where I think people before, no matter what I would say, if I'm like, I'm, you know, I mainly make cartoons or whatever. It's yeah. like, I, I like, you know, I say I make a lot. Of, I make comedy. I've made a bunch of comedy. I've made other things. I mean, game shows. I've done a bunch of other shit, you know, made news programming. Something about my most of my career is I've made cartoons and most people would be like, oh, that's cool. But like once Rick and Morty happened, they like understood that in a way that I, I think that, you know, I look, The Simpsons is real. Like that's like going to be on, you know, even something about Rick and Morty for a certain gender. Like if I say I, you're like, oh, I get what you do now. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 also it's a level of production that I think mm -hmm. is like this purposeful. I don't know, like perfection. I'm serious. I, I fucking love love that show. It when the writing got even crazier, when it, it, it turned into some because I think the way people thought and we're, we're going to talk about your backstory in a second. But yeah. the way people thought about animation as single serving things that was like a very brief stimulation of their mind entertainment to to watch while you ate a bowl of cereal rick and morty i mean obviously like anime as a as an aside yeah. was was doing that but on the american side stuff like boondocks but more importantly rick and morty that made a thing where it's like no this is now an event this is not bring your bowl of cereal and watch it in the morning this is like prime time television we're competing with other shows that are a, a a hundred X in the budget, yeah. you know, and I it, think, it's, it's incredible writing. Yeah. And look, like, to be clear, you know, so my, basically I developed it. We can talk about that, made the pilot work, you know, with Justin and Dan, you know, Justin Rowland and Dan Harmon throughout the writing of that pilot to get them made. And then I left. And so it's sort of when like so much of what they did, you know, I have no part of, you know, sort of birthed it and then they sort of ran with it. But I think to your point, there's something about the the production value for sure, but there's something about the density and sort yeah. of bespokeness of each episode at that kind of quality that I think feels like the like a very dense live action show that just animation even The Simpsons doesn't have. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I and look, I tell I was talking to another friend early on when I like I think maybe I showed him the pilot 
and I think we can keep this, but I was showing my, uh, my friend who makes a lot and has been very successful in animation, who's maybe one of the smartest people I know. And he read this, he was like, damn, this shit is sick. This is, <laughs> this is great, but they cannot make many of these. And I was like, what do you oh. mean? And I was like, really like so proud of it. And I was like, what do you think of this? And he goes, this is not meant to, this is too dense. It's too bespoke. It's too high concept. Each, like the episode. It's just too much. Like, like the no, audience isn't smart enough. No, basically. no, that the, no, the audience is smart enough. The creative team behind it cannot make hundreds of episodes. Mm. And I look back at this and you go, wow, there's been a bunch of seasons, but man, do they take them forever to make those episodes. And it was like the opposite of something like a South Park or even a Simpsons where you can just churn it out. Like there's a certain amount. And especially in those, you know, second and third season, I think it's really clear too, but you're like, it's just they feel very belabored, you know, and that's what yeah, makes that's them true. awesome. But it does not it is not what most animation was ever meant to do. Animation is supposed to get to 100 episodes as fast. You know, it's supposed to get to 100 episodes like most as fast as, yeah. as fast as possible. And you look at this and you go, damn, they're I mean, what are they on? 50 episodes now? 40, 50 episodes, five know. seasons in? Yeah, it's been 10 years, bro. You know, like, it's, yeah. like we're going, it's a long time. And I just remember him telling me this being like, this is great, but this is this. They can't do what something like a South Park or Matt and Trey do. Can't it can't it just can't do what a, it doesn't have the formula that like mm. a, a, a family guy has where it's like, hey, Jeremy, remember when we did that? And then you just got a team that's right in that thing that they did. Remember, we did that yeah. podcast. There's a joke about the podcast. Each episode is so, you know, it's it's maybe feels more like television now even than then. But it yeah. is, it is, there's a density and a uniqueness epi to each episode that I think, I don't know. It was funny when I was like, not that it, again, not a knock, but it was like, these guys can't make a ton of these things wow. and keep up the quality. And it sort of has shown like not, it's just, they don't have that many, is yeah. you know? Yeah. Damn. It's, it's interesting. Well, let's jump back because. Yeah. Sure. You have said on many occasions in the very few interviews that are out there about you, but like the the string that runs through it all is that you speak about that, like how you got into the business wasn't really deserved, which I want to pick at. But you talk about how you broke into the business through friends. The story is I definitely did not want to be in TV. I <laughs> like had no interest. I was in I was a writer. I was a, a journalist. Specifically, I was a magazine editor. And it was That's like fader, I, right? Well, I know I wrote a story for the fader. I had a magazine that was like adjacent to early like vice. It was called while you were sleeping and it was a graffiti magazine. Oh, that's right. So basically I went, I got to college and I wanted to be a journalist and a writer. Like I'd been writing. I was like, oh, this is something I really want to do. And I, yeah, why? Because Faulkner is like too difficult to understand. To, yeah. Well, Fa Faulkner like <laughs> sort of came, like I was into English. I was like, maybe I want to go into academia. But I definitely, I was very interested in music. I was interested in music journalism and I was interested in like comedy writing. I just want like, liked writing. And I started, I got an internship in sophomore year of college or end of, end of freshman year of college. And I was living in New York City and at, uh, at a place called uh, sudo.com, which was like the earliest internet radio. This is 1999. Like, okay. You know, so it's basically you and KEXP in terms of yes. internet radio at the yes. time. Yeah. And, and this, they, they made a documentary about the guy who created sudo.com called, uh, we live in public. Like the guy's a total, you know, at the guy that created this, like the first internet TV, really like the first right. lives and internet radio, but with live streaming, 
absolutely brilliant documentary. Guys, out of his mind, you should watch. We live in public. They had the DKNY building on Houston. You remember what? Yep. Or it used to be the DKNY. I think something else is there now. It's on the corner of yep. Houston. They had all the floors of this six, you know, six floor building, and each one of the floors was an internet radio station that would do something sort of different. You know, there was like a coffee house folk station. There was a you know techno like jungle music station, and the top floor was. 88 Hip Hop, which was a hip hop radio station. And I got a job as an intern at 88 Hip Hop. And I was like, that's what I did for the summer. I worked for a brilliant editor, young dude named G Kim, who also had a, his own hip hop magazine. And he was running this internet radio. And I was running around sort of my job was to get they would have parties. They would they would mm -hmm. film DJ sets. They would basically film DJ sets, put them out online, audio and video. But no one had like high enough Wi-Fi or buffering to like actually watch the video. And I would get <laughs> Real like player. Yeah. And I, my job was to get uh, basically release forms like Nas would show up and I have to get, figure out how to how do I get Nas to give me his release form? you know, like to sign his release for that was my job. And, it would, you know, I do it like on, you know, a couple days a week. And then he was like, do you want to uh, you seem like you're really interested. Do you want to write? here and i was like yeah i would love to write here so i wrote their hip-hop news i would write copy for their hip-hop news that would come out i think probably you know a couple days a week and while i was there they had video cameras and i would take the video cameras and i would go to shows saying i was a journalist no video camera and i would get backstage to show i just get into free shows like the wetlands like hieroglyphics yeah. are performing at the wetlands i would get in for free and because i would say oh i'm a journalist with 88 hip-hop then I meet a guy named Chris Naracco, who is like a legend. He was the editor of Big Brother magazine, which was Skate mm -hmm. Magazine, oh, and, yeah, Str yeah. and Strength Magazine. And he's like, and I know this story is, gonna, is getting long, but I just do think you'll appreciate this from all the skate shit. He, I meet this dude backstage and he goes, uh, do you have access? He's like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm a journalist, radio hip hop. He goes, do you have access to a video camera? And I was like, sure. So I go and I'm like, yes. He goes, I do cr the craziest fucking interviews you've ever seen. Like someone's got to record these because they just don't work just in print. And he takes me to a Fat Joe interview and Whoa. I steal a video camera and it is the craziest interview I've ever seen. Like he's just like, he almost gets his ass kicked and then everything Fat Joe has said, he then takes me to the back and says he's going to kick my ass if I don't erase everything that was just said on this thing. Like, it was really nuts. And it was, like, very dangerous. And then the guy goes, all right, you passed. And he started giving me writing work. And he's like, you can write for Big Brother. You can write for Strength, which is another, you know, skater magazine. Yeah. And then he ultimately hooks me up with this dude that has started this graffiti magazine. And I start writing for them. And I realize, like, the copy is pretty terrible. And I go, what if I'm your editor? Because someone needs to edit this magazine. And so now I'm a sophomore in college. And, you know, I'm like sneaking into Cool Keith's bus to like try to interview him and like th things like that. And so it's like, that's how my career basically like, I guess it's more of the hustle is what we talked about. It's like, I'm just doing whatever I can to get into the bus or backstage to then try to write some kind of piece. And ultimately, this guy goes, hey, look, I got to sh shutter this magazine. Like, I'm just spending all my money on this thing. I was like, well, what if I can find a money for it? What if I can get someone to like VC some kind of investment? And somehow I find some crazy dude who's like wants to be Larry Flint. And you know, <laughs> he he's like, yeah, as long as you put like girls in the magazine, like honestly, as long as I can see like na naked girls, I was like, I can't promise that, but I will try. And then he's yeah. like, you can go. And then obviously it's not nothing like what our magazine is. It's like a comedy graffiti magazine. And so I I find the money and the guy makes me his partner. And that's 
what I, that's like how I became a magazine editor. And then we had a really good run of a few years. Vice was getting really popular. We, yeah. you know, were making a little bit of money. As things go, me and my partner sort of had a falling out. And it like oh, okay. stopped being fun. And I was like, I got to do something else. Like this was really good. But like, if I'm not doing this with my partner and there's a bunch of other shit going on in my life. How I old like, are you at this time? I'm, is this like the quarter life crisis? Stuff, I'm, 20, I'm 23. Okay. So you're getting there. No, tw yeah. 22, 23. And then I'm like, I got to do something, but I don't know what I'm <laughs> going to do. And I go to, go to my brother who is uh, in college and he's a senior in college. I was like, I'm just going to crash at his like dorm for like, a couple weeks, you know, okay. like the house he's living in. Wait, 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 wait a second. I got to get my bids in on the Bezel app, but more on that in, in a minute. I get all sorts of emails and questions from you all, which I love to read and respond. And one thing I constantly get and even read in the Blamo Slack is what watch should I buy and where should I get it? It's a wild world out there with all sorts of websites and shops, but I go to Bezel. Bezel is the trusted marketplace for buying and selling your next luxury watch with expert in-house authentication on every purchase. First off, folks, it's getbezel.com. That's getbezel.com. But I use and recommend Bezel because it's the best of both worlds. You can go to the site and browse a marketplace of luxury watches, over 16,000 of them, by the way, which is a lot. And I know that Bezel is going to authenticate your purchase. Or you can create an account and get connected with your own private client advisor called the concierge. Because look, making a watch purchase can be confusing, especially when you don't know all the reference numbers. When was this made? Did they use ceramic then? Is it a triple lop, dingle dop? You know, what the heck? I don't even know. But they do at Bezel, and they're here to help. Concierge, baby. Look, if looking for your watch to mark a special occasion, or maybe you're just doing research, right? They even have their own journal where you can learn all the ins and outs about Bezel and the brands and all the stuff that's happening right now. But back to my bids. Yes, Bezel now has auctions. And not just any auctions. They got Rolex, they got Cartier, they got Audemars Piguet, all the big dogs and more. So you can discover, bid, and know the Bezel team has got your back with verified in-house authentication. So visit getbezel.com on your smartphone or computer, Bezel, the trusted marketplace for buying or selling your next luxury watch. I'm sitting in my brother's place and all of his friends are watching stuff on Adult Swim and no one knows what Adult Swim is. It's like, it's, you yeah. know, it's just late night Cartoon Network. They're all watching Aqua Teen Hunger Force. I was sort of familiar with it, but like, I'm talking about like everybody's watching it every night that I'm at like staying with my brother. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, damn, this thing seems really popular. So I start like doing a little bit of like, not research, but I was just really taken with like how much everyone seemed to love this very, like, as you said, very weird shit. Like this is, yeah. this is not like other comedy that's on. Like it's, it's very Dada. It's very like, hard to follow. And everyone's like, getting stoned and really loving this and i like <laughs> look it up online i'm like damn i'm looking this up and like they, this is getting higher numbers like viewership numbers than jimmy kimmel like this is oh wow yeah i mean you know jimmy kimmel then you know like he had just yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. like network television late night aqua teen hunger force is getting better numbers that's insane so i'm like i want to write a story about this network and so i pitch it all around and i finally get someone to bite on it because i'm like i, I gotta write i gotta do something i can't live with my brother in a dorm room he's about to graduate i'm an adult like what the <laughs> fuck is going on 
<laughs> you know, like, but I, you know, so I, um, I basically go to Atlanta to do a story on Adult Swim for mm-hmm. Esquire that for me is really about why do men specifically, because it was really over indexing, like men, it was like 18 to 34 year old men watching this. That's who the advertisers want. And I was like, why are <laughs> men watching this when there's nothing gendered about it? It's not like the man show, which it was a few years earlier. Like I was yeah. like, it was more just like, why do also like men really love Monty Python? And it doesn't seem like, you know, m- you know, yeah. my girlfriends really want to talk to me about Monty Python. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it, you know, it's sort of empirical stuff, but you're like, it definitely felt like at least the way advertisers were talking about it that, and the way the numbers broke down, like this feels really gendered. So I go to Atlanta and I'm, no one has ever gone and done an article about Adult Swim. Like no one knows who they are. They I would have figured there would have been like a Rolling Stone thing. There was time, not a least, single no? thing. Like they are really wow. under the radar. And I'm the first person to show up. And I spend like four days doing like an embedded story where I spend yeah. four days like looking at this weird stepchild of Cartoon Network. And mm-hmm. I spend most of my time talking to this guy, Mike Lazo, who created Adult Swim. He found it, you know, he made space. He, his story is unbelievable. Like, you know, it's like true, like fucking uh, the, the Cheetos guy, the flaming hot Cheetos guy that everyone says is not real. This is the real version. This guy starts in the yeah, mail yeah, room yeah. and then be- creates adult swim. So he, um, he, I'm talking to him over four days. He's yeah. very weird and misanthropic and he doesn't like a lot of people. He doesn't like to travel. And he yep. hears that someone that he really likes, it's maybe because there's only like eight people that work at Adult Swim. It's very small. Like no one's there. It's not even a network yet. It's just like an hour and a half or whatever, two hours at yeah. night. That some, that their creative director, like a brilliant artist designer guy named Jacob Escobedo, who ended up doing like all of like, not just the shin stuff, but he does like a lot of artwork you'd recognize for a lot of like bands that you'd know. He goes, oh, I love it uh, while you were sleeping. This magazine that I mean, no, I didn't think anybody knew this magazine. Oh, shit. Like I knew we were like, okay. And like, how'd New you York, feel when that happened? Sort of you telling me anybody would ask me to fucking be on your podcast. I mean, I was like shocked. Fuck. No, yeah, I swear well, to God, okay. I'm, I was shocked <laughs> because yeah. this guy, Mike Lazo comes up to me and he goes, hey, Jacob Escobedo and this guy, Chip Duffy, who's also is a great you know, you know, uh, these names sound like comic book characters. No, they're so funny. That's why I say, I just also, this is the first time I've ever really told this story. It's like, these guys are like two guys that are like, Oh, we know this guy's magazine and we like it. And this guy, Mike Lazo comes up to me and says, these two guys who work at cartoon network and adults them say, they know your magazine. I don't know it, but I trust them. And I like them. Do you want to like, let's like go to lunch. And I'm like, okay, I'm interviewing him. Oh, wow. Okay. And I'm like, okay. And we go to lunch and we mainly talk. It comes up that he like, we, he knows he collects Faulkner first editions. This guy didn't graduate high school. He started in the mailroom at, at Cartoon Network. <laughs> he collects Faulkner first editions. And I was a, Fa- and at college, I was a Faulkner scholar. So it's like, I know all of Faulkner. Are you he, fucking kidding no. me? No. So he's like, no, this is like, I know all of Faulkner. And we're talking, he's like, oh, he's, he could, he can't believe it. So we really bond over this thing, right? We're like, and he, and that I feel like is so weird. And then at the end of this lunch, he's like, um, cause I was supposed to have left. He said, stay an extra day. And I was like, okay. So I stay an extra day. And he's like, what are you doing after this? And I was like, I'm going home. I gotta go. I'm, I'm going to go back and live with my parents in DC. And, <laughs> yeah. and he's like, well, and I'm going to write this story. And he goes, and then what? And then I was like, I'm going to hopefully it, people read it and I'll do another story. Yeah. And then maybe I'll become an editor again of some kind of magazine. But, and he was like, well, would you want to come work here? And I was like, 
<laughs> no, absolutely not. What do you mean? And he was like, you seriously said no at first? Yeah, absolutely. I said no. I was like, I, I'm going to move to Atlanta. I was like, yeah, and this is pre all the no, Atlanta there's nothing. The I was like spot. very like I was very into like Southern hip hop. Like I was very into David Banner. I was very into, you know, like, wow, you know, really? Bone Crusher. I, but I was like, oh, absolutely. Wow. <laughs> not gonna move to atlanta and then he called me basically for the next month like every couple of days or once a week and he's like i talked to i talked to hr i talked to (laughs) hr and they gotta they they they, we you're gonna be the head uh you're gonna be the uh head of um development and i was like huge huge role that is that is but but i I don't know i don't even know what that is like at the time i have no idea what that is and I was like, no, no, thank you. Like, I can't move there. And he just really like didn't wear me down, but he was like, just come on, come on, come on, come on. Let's, let's do it. And I was like, this is okay. And I was like, I got to get out of my parents' house. And then I talked to the Esquire editor and he goes, well, you can't publish the story because it's a huge yeah. conflict of interest if they're offering yeah, you a, a big job and you're doing this. And he goes, and I was like, damn. And, he, and I was like, but I don't even know if I want to do this. And he was like, well, do it for a year. And then maybe you got like a really big story. Maybe you got a book, you know, going down and working at this weird pirate ship of a place. And I was like, Ooh, that's great. I'll do this for a year. It'll be so interesting. I'll go to the Atlanta. I'm going to trick this guy, but my secret motive is to write a book. (laughs) And I show up. Cause that's where you make money. That's where you make money. I was like, (laughs) by the way, it's like the idea that I was still going to be in like print publishing. It was like, it's so psychotic (laughs) that that could have been my life. Like it's, it is really wild. Like the, the struggle of that, like, but I was, (laughs) It is insane. I mean, this is, this is no, this is no, you know, walk in the park, but it is like, God damn, that would have been awful. So I go yep. there for a year. Well, I, I like go there and literally he has this. This is how basically I show up and I, to be honest, I don't know what being an, a develop, head of development is. I don't know what that means. Just side note. Do you know what an yeah. upfront is? Absolutely. So an upfront, in case your audience doesn't. Yeah, explain it to the audience. Well, which no, is great. It's, Go like, ahead. it's becoming less and less like relevant now. Like almost no one has and they basically canceled it. But when it was there was linear TV and, ad, and it was all ad supported, you needed big advertisers to pay, you know, to keep your shows on the air. You'd have you need to make all your money up front. You know, you need to have it. You know, you need to know part of your nut is covered to make your TV show. Or to mm-hmm. make to run your network, so you have these big events at the beginning of like the buying year, and you you make it as sexy as possible, and you say, "I have all these. Here's all the stars, and here's all these things." It's like now give us your money. So you try to make as much money as possible, and then you know sell it at a premium, get your network paid for, and then you sort of can sell make money, make yeah. money. And Pretty genius idea, to be honest. With it's you. a great yeah. idea. Our my first day of work because I was living in D.C. It was in New York where I'd been living and it was the adult swim upfront. It was the first upfront that they ever had. And we did not know what we were doing. We had no one famous and all these advertisers, you know, eventually we would have these parties that were the most famous yeah. part, like Kanye's playing, Jay-Z's playing, you know, like it was like crazy upfronts where people dole out like millions and millions of dollars to bring people out for like three minutes, you know, but this time no one, we don't have anyone and there's no one famous making any of our shows. And that's my first day of work is the first adults I'm up front. And the main. Which, act- by the way, that, for folks, the, the head of development should be the person who is the most like paramount number one person in an upfront. It's not like you were, you know, some like lower level person. No, no, this is the, I'm, I'm yeah. there and, and, you know, but none of us know what we're doing. <laughs> Mike Lazo gets on stage with the head of the advertising who's real suit and he doesn't know what to say. It's very awkward. And then they bring out the rapture. 
the DFA band who oh, Lazo yeah. loved, but they're not famous. They like, start playing House of Jealous Lovers. Yes, and <laughs> screaming no, and at the no top of their lungs. If this is not U2, do you know this is not the Rolling Stones? They don't give a fuck. And so basically people are like talking and not booing, but no one's up there with this with this band that like everyone thinks is gonna be so yeah. like I went to Rapture shows, but Bowery, yeah, but like yeah. Lazo and all these people were like, "This is huge." No one gives a shit. Downstairs, <laughs> and there's a downstairs. Uh, I think it was at the Knitting Factory. This is Tribeca Knitting Factory. Yes, Tribeca. Knit, yes, which also not a place like anybody really wants to um, uh, go. <laughs> yeah, most upfronts, I'll say for folks, are usually at Thirty Rock, yeah. and they're huge. And it's where every person. Every network goes out to flex on all the new shows and they say, hey, well, we got this new show coming up. We got this. When I was a stylist, I would dress the, the first I dressed Josh Gad for upfronts for 1600 pen. Yes. And it was like a huge fucking deal. Oh, it's a, hu- so, it's a huge deal. So downstairs, yeah. and this is such a tangent, is uh, Danger Mouse is the DJ downstairs and he had just wow. made the gray album. But wow. this was a moment where we were like, no one, we all thought no one would be downstairs in this like hang room. Everyone went downstairs to see danger mouse and the, and then he and the gray album him do the gray album like literally it just come out and that was where we're like oh shit this guy's gonna be super famous and we end up making this mf doom danger mouse album called mf doom which is sort of like if you care about adult swim and like yeah you know mf doom is like the seminal thing but that was like my first day and i got in my car and i was like damn this is actually pretty cool i thought it was not going to be corny <laughs> but i was like damn this is pretty cool this is this weird hanging out with my brother yeah he's hanging out with my brother <laughs> watching aqua Teen. <laughs> and getting stoned and go you yeah know, uh stealing booze from frat houses in like 20 that was so crazy and so i we i get in my car and i drive to atlanta and i move there and my first day of work basically i i th- i thought maybe in the back of my mind he was gonna want me to my job would be to like create a magazine like print wasn't totally dead i was like maybe he wants some like ancillary like adult swim kind of magazine and that's yeah, what I, I was going to say, do you have like imposter syndrome stuff? Because I mean, it's from a lot of these things too. And, and like, you know, from other interviews that you've, you know, that I've read and other people that know you, you get handed opportunities and you personally sound like that you don't deserve them and you wouldn't know how to do it, but your track record's pretty fucking good. So like, I'm just trying to connect no, these dots. I mean, like, I don't what's think, going on mentally? Look, I don't think I have imposter syndrome. I think I'm good at the things that I do. I try, I work really hard. I mean, I, and I feel like okay. I'm good at understand the thing I think I'm good at, like my family's from polit, like is from politics or politics adjacent. I grew up in DC. I do feel like I have a pretty good, like cognitive, like ability to see opportunity and to sort of go with the flow. Right. Like I do okay. think I'm pretty good at that. I don't know the things that I'm doing. I also don't think I'm not trying to like do engineering. I'm not trying to be a doctor. Like these aren't that difficult things to do. If you can just sort of read a room and figure out what to do like i think i have a children's good sense hospital of humor. Is pretty good oh yeah children's <laughs> hospital is pretty good. but you know like again it's sort of just like figuring out so it's funny like look i also don't really like i don't really do this and i if it's the when i do talk about it i do feel like very lucky you know i'm not great at talking about myself i'm not i so i don't necessarily feel imposter syndrome but i don't feel like you know i do work really hard but when it as we talked about friend of the show guest of the show like chris store it's like when I see the work he does, I don't know. There's something about like seeing him on like make the bear. And it's like, not that I don't think I could do that. I just, there's a certain respect you have for like a certain crap. I don't, I don't know if I would say I even have a crap. Like if I have a talent specifically, it's like I can facilitate other people's intentions. Like I'm good at figuring out 
if what is it that you want to do, I will help you do the, I can help you do not my version. Cause it's, I do feel I'm egoless in that way. Like the best version of the thing you want to do. It is what I think. Like I always say, people think that they fucking hate network executives for good or bad. They fucking hate them. You hear people talk shit all the time about it. I was like, yeah. Faulkner had an editor, you know, like Ralph Ellison left his estate to his editor. Like people, like every good writer has an editor. I don't know why TV or film doesn't quite have the same relationship. Is this like a Moses and Aaron vibe you're hinting at here? No, I, 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 I'm not. It, no, I mean, I think, it, yeah, maybe in a sort of archetypal sense. But yes, you everyone is supposed to have someone in their life. I think I have a I wasn't I always preferred to be an editor than a writer. I don't love to write. I can do it. I love to help other people figure out what is it they want to do. It doesn't always have to be writing. It doesn't always have to be comedy. But I do think that, yeah, like I'm if if I've located the thing I like to do and that I think I'm good at is that I can help you see your vision. I can help you. I can understand it. And and I know that a lot of people sometimes don't necessarily see the clearest path forward to making it. You know, like they get clouded for whatever reason. It's like, how do you move some of it away? And how do you get your vision to the finish line? I think I'm very good at helping your intention get realized. And so, yeah, I, I don't, I, it, again, that's a weird, it's like, I don't, again, not imposter syndrome, maybe just sort of the Jewish part about me that feels like weird talking about myself, but I don't really feel like I have like, like some like crap, like it's not like I have some like vocation, you know, that I've like, le- you know what I mean? That I've like learned and I've like, it's like, well, the startling thing though, is I think you're in an industry that's very focused and in most cases lives off of vanity. It's about energy. It's heat seeking missiles, right? Yeah. Of, of just the LA, especially on like the TV filmmaking, all that side. But the thing that it sounds like you're the most interested in is actually, for most people, it sounds like a personal hell because you're the number two. You're the most important person in the room, but you're not the person that the story's getting written about, right? Yeah. Like, and that is, you gotta, I don't know what it is, but like, there's gotta be some sort of confidence or peace or some sort of joy that you have to where you're like, okay being adjacent yeah. to the the fame and not being the fame totally i again but i would say that's where my like this kind of thing with chris comes from about is like feeling absolutely okay to not be the center of it but just to be involved in it i and like rick has it rick rubin has it mm-hmm. like i think chris store has there's a bunch of people i don't and again i don't know where it comes from i'm just saying that there's a certain amount of like security or comfort i had growing up i had a lot of insecurities i have a ton of insecurities, but i think and i probably do have some level of an imposter syndrome on some level from experiences growing up i don't think that's how they're playing out here but what i think of not caring about it is like i've always basically felt if i'm like working and i'm being mm-hmm. paid to work and the things i'm making i like win then is that's a win i was like literally that's a win and frankly i think it's a lot easier for me to continue to win when i'm not at the front you know like yeah. i feel like i have more mobility because i don't have one kind of thing that i like to do i don't have a brand yeah you're not really pigeonholed no. i agree with that and you can kind of do anything yeah it's like yeah i've had you know talk to friends who have had issues with that on like other people's shows where they're like, I'm doing that. And it, why am I not getting the credit for it? And I was like, well, it's the other guy's name on the show. Right. Right. Like th- they win or lose based on the success. You can continue to keep working. You know, yeah. it's like there's a certain amount of, you know, yeah, there's a certain reward, but there's also a certain a major risk when you're like the front and center and you're the main creative person. And again, if you have to do that, I also feel there's a drive to do that. But again, I don't know why I feel comfortable 
in that position. But again, I, look, all I, I would tell anybody that would ever want to get in this business or any business, you know, and I, I would say that what is it that you offer, right? The number one thing would be, what do you offer? What is unique that is special to what you offer? And often the first thing people say is not necessarily the right answer. It's whatever's right. It's like the note behind the note. It's what's ever beneath that. And it, yeah. it didn't, it took me some time to figure it out, but I was like, I get the same enjoyment of helping my friend design his restaurant that I do out of making or developing a Rick and Morty. It's the same endorphin. It's the same sense of joy. It's like helping someone figure the thing out and get their thing across is something I find like as like the same kind of whatever emotional, physiological, like dopamine reward is the same to me, you know? But then I have other friends who are like, damn, I just got a straight up, I got to write. Like if I am not writing and I am not creating, then I am not, you know, an artist. And And I don't feel... Like, I just want to be working with people I like, you know, life is hard and this fucking business is fucking brutal. And it's like, all we got is the thing that we're making. And I don't really is. And this may be a way of figuring out how to keep working. You know, I think what made me a good uh, network executive when I was one was most of my job, 90% of my job is just saying no in the nicest way. I mean, that's all the job is, is saying no, is finding ways to like. Ooh, okay. Give, give me an example. I just, I just pitched you this show. It's a garbage dump. And, but you think maybe someday I might make something other than. Well, I mean, you, first I of all, know. I will say if someone's pitching me, I've always felt very strongly that you have to tell them no in the room. You ha- like the idea that you say, oh, this was great. And then that's you call great. their manager. Cause that's another thing. It's like, no one wants to take accountability or few people. There's some great, there's some great executives. Like I've you know, worked with some awesome ones, you know, especially comedy executives, you know, like, but there's most people don't want to say no. They want to, they want to shirk the responsibility because it ain't, it ain't doesn't feel good. And, but, you know, like always saying no. So always usually, I mean, it has to be specific, but I almost always would find something, something in it. That's like, whether it's like, look, you got something in this tone here, you have something in this character here, just some kind of creative way to give someone because one thing you don't really want to do is like put the fire out. Like if you know, you can't put the light out like Ooh. that to me would be too devastating. I mean, maybe, you know, even on someone that you feel might deserve it is like, I just don't, you know, who's that for me? To, I mean, who, who, who am I to say that? Like you want to keep them like yeah, still engaged to like continue this. <laughs> You know, this this hamster, you know, running that hamster wheel. I just said, yeah. that's not for me. You know, let God decide that. I, <laughs> I, I just don't. So I think that I would find some way of communicating no, but in, in a way that like talked again, it's without a very, spe- I normally would be very specific. You'd pitch me your show and I'd be like, all sure, right, look. Sure. Character A is yeah, or, or something Character even B more about flat. just like, look, you are into something that is very interesting or guess what? This whole idea, I see what you're trying to do, but you have to get more personal, right? You got to figure out what's the thing that keeps you up at night, that kind of right. note, because this isn't it, but something Ooh, that's, that's there, note. like that kind of thing, like always give them something because I think that that's really important. But, um, and by the way, this brings me back to like my first day when I walked back to Adult Swim is when I thought I was going to run a magazine. And that's when you thought I would have imposter syndrome. I really didn't know what the job was. And then I was like, oh shit, I'm going to write, you know, the bumps were the black and white cards that go on and before. And I was like, Maybe I'm just here to write bumps. So I wrote bumps for a while. Like, I really didn't know. This guy said, you'll figure out your job. But the one thing you have to do is you have to respond to all of these letters of pitches. <gasps> and oh, we were I, uh... so, basically the way pitches in Hollywood work is like an agent calls and says, we're setting up our client for pitches. No one knew what Adult Swim was. And we were in Atlanta. <laughs> 
So no one, there was no one setting up any calls for us, right? Mm-hmm. I, there was literally like 200 envelopes of people writing handwritten or printed out pitches for TV shows that were just mailed to them. Like it was like a fan, like a fan. This is like a record label in a way. Yes, a total record label. And he goes, and so Mike Lazar says, you know, we'll figure out what you want to do here, but the one thing you got to do is these, (laughs) these envelopes are piling up and you need to put them into three boxes. You need to put them into yes, no, maybe. And I read through 200 pitches and it was 200 no's. And one thing I did was I wrote a handwritten note to everyone back. Because again, I didn't know what I was 24 years old. That's incredible. So I wrote a handwritten note. And I have heard other people later who became writers, I did hear at least one person do some kind of comedy stand-up that said that kept them going, was that I got a letter from a dude named Nick Weidenfeld when I sent in a pitch, and he wrote me a handwritten note with real notes back. And like, that's maybe, that informed me, because I heard that, and I'm like, damn, that's like really meaningful, you know? Yeah. And a lot of people, you don't even get, you don't even get that. You you don't even get the opportunity to try to talk to the person who can set up the meeting for you to do the pitch. No, in fact, I learned way later, it's probably illegal because you do need some kind of NDA sign because someone would sue you and say, you stole my idea. Like you're really not even supposed to take unsolicited pitches, you know? So it's like, the whole thing is <laughs> oh my God. crazy. Yeah. So, but my, so I go through all of that. I, they're all no's, right? There's no yes of some dude at home. They're all basically versions of, there's the three weirdos that live in an apartment. They're all just like some version of, uh, yeah. Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Friends. No, Aqua Teen oh, Hunger Force. Literally, yeah. it's, it's a computer and a headphones and they a got, hat, and they live in a. It's like, yeah. They got a yeah. crazy neighbor. Yeah, Look they, out. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you do realize the human mind can also be very limited. And so, uh, so they're all no's. And I, uh, I'm like, damn, what am I, what am I going to do? And this is where I think when I said my, well, the way I feel my job is to facilitate facilitate other people's intentions is mm-hmm. I was like, I now I was like, I got to do something. And so I call, I basically, I was like, damn, I need a, I need to find someone to work with. And I call, and I was like, I love Robert Smigel. And if you know, Robert Smigel, he created TV Funhouse. He was like one of the head writers on SNL and he made all these funny yeah. cartoons and I call him and he, he's famous. And I call him, I just, yeah, I was yeah. call SNL and I was like, can you put me in touch with Robert Smigel's office? And he, picks up the phone and he's like, no I've way. never, I'm like here once a month. And I was like, oh, I'm calling from Adult Swim. I'm a huge fan of yours. And would you ever want to make a show for us? And he was like, no, <laughs> but I'll explain why. He's like, I do know what Adult Swim is. I know what Space Ghost is. He goes, look, I got an autistic son. I got a special needs son and he needs a oh. tremendous amount of, you know, his, he, you sure. know, his care is, is tremendously expensive and you're not paying what i would need at adult swim i know that much (laughs) so i can't do it but i do recommend you call a guy named dino stamatopoulos he's the funniest guy i know and he'll do it (laughs) (laughs) and i talked to my brother who's also a comedy nerd more of a nerd about the stuff than i am and like he bought the mr you remember the show mr show with bob and dave yeah he he bought the like mr show behind the scenes book and everything and I say, man, wow. I ca- you're not going to believe this, Daniel. That's my brother. I talked to Robert Smigel. And he's like, oh, shit. And he goes, he said, yeah, he said I should call a guy named Dino Stamatopoulos. And he goes, whoa, Dino Stamatopoulos is a legend. And I was like, really? And he goes, he wrote every sketch that you liked of Mr. Show. Like he wrote the most famous sketch, the sketch, the audition. And I was yeah. like, oh, shit. So I call, I set up a meeting with Dino and we talk for a while and he's telling me the shit he's interested in and we made more laurel. And that was like, that was the sort of first thing that came that and robot chicken. Cause again, stop motion. That's how the, both those came about. 
but I realized in that, like in Robot Chicken, Moral Oral, those early shows, Tim and Eric, Super Jail, my job was to leave Atlanta and go to LA and sometimes New York, like basically to take Mike Lazo's vision and the shows they were all making in Atlanta and take that intention and Mm -hmm. make it and broaden it. Like that was my job. Like I felt I knew what was funny was like, all right, let's, we can do some live action, but it all has to be in this sensibility. Do you know what I mean? Like he's the head, he's the, he's the point of view. He's the Godhead of this thing. And my job, because he hates leaving, he hates traveling. I think he, to be honest, not some imposter syndrome shit. I do believe he only really hired me outside of the Faulkner thing because I was the first person he met. Like he, no one had ever met him. <laughs> like no one, he had, he hated me. No, true. Okay. He didn't, sure. he didn't. He didn't know he didn't leave Atlanta. And once he saw that I would leave, he never left. Like right. he's really like, you know, hated flying. Like he really, yeah, so, was I it. Get that. so when I met him, he was like, oh, you came here. This means something here. I'm going <laughs> to hire you. Like I came to him. So that's, so that's how all of that stuff basically started was I was like, oh, I understand. Oh, I thought I'd write bumps. I thought I'd create a magazine. I was like, no, no, my job is to take this guy's vision and what he did with Aqua Teen Hunger Force and Space Ghost and Squid Billies and these like like early shows out of this space and go now if we're going to become a, a network that is more that it takes up more time how do we expand that vision without ever doing something that is undermines it and to me like the Boondocks became a huge version of that you're like that it's like yeah. that feels like it's adjacent to that but it's it's about a totally different world and it feels like it's bigger but the the tone of it feels consistent with being on this like whatever quote irreverent network or something you know what i mean Mm -hmm. same with tim and eric that's live action but it feels like we all watch it and go you know and i remember like all of us watching like tom goes to the mayor and being like this feels like this is the kinds of minds that would be here but they're out in la you know that becomes my job to help grow that out and i would basically did that the rest of my career you know like i would go places and like how do i help build take this thing and sort of broaden and out and make it bigger and maybe that speaks to the same thing you were talking about before, which is like, I don't need to be the center of that. I just like the I like the work and I like, you know, helping people grow their shit out. And yeah, because in both roles, you know, you're you're that that number two in the sense with Mike at yeah. Adult Swim, but then also in helping these other people develop and make their shows. Yeah. You know, I mean, still being because, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who work and live in L.A. and they make stuff and. You know, everyone always says the same thing, like you were saying. It's like, it's just so hard to make something. Like, to, you know, not to, to have the idea, but to actually get it produced, to get it, you know, on air. And then even now when it feels like we're in this content glut with, you know, siloed things on Jerby and Goober and all these little apps, whatever people are using. It's like, yeah, I watch this on Dingle Dog. And you're like, oh, shit, man. You know, so it's like all those things that are out there. It's still hard to get shit made. It's impossible. You know, I was telling my kid was like, you know, he was like, I want to write a cartoon. I was like, let's do it. Let's go. And we started working on it. And, he, you know, show him how to use Final Draft. And like, we're writing the show. And he goes, so is this going to happen? Like, is this going to get made? Like, are we, are we doing it? And I was like, we're doing it. What are you talking about? And he was like, but what yeah. if it does? It's like not real. And I was like, we're doing what every dude in a coffee shop is doing and then living in LA. Like, this is it. Is it going to get made? Yeah. I don't know. Probably. Maybe on YouTube. Probably not. Maybe on YouTube. But guess what? We're doing the work. And if we're, again, I was tell, telling a 10-year-old this, like, 
this is the work. Like you are, this is telling your son. Also, like this is it. If you, if we're doing this because you think this is going to get on TV, let's go fucking shoot some baskets or something. Like, like, this is like this is it, and this experience needs to be really fun while we do it. Because I can tell you, if it's not, then it's definitely not going to get made. That's one thing I also know. You can tell when there's joy in something and when there's not. Ooh, yeah, that's heavy. You know, I mean, because that that that's just art in general. Yes. Where you look at every every bad album, film, whatever that is, you can you can see, I don't know. It's you can like see an energy of when someone's at a place doing what they don't want to do. You know, go go to a coffee shop where a person's like fucking pissed that they're there, and it's like, oh yeah, I I, I can see it. You, you don't want to be here. Yeah, totally. You don't want to do this. And yeah. And you can. And when it's a struggle, you can. And I mean, this is especially true, I think, in comedy. And it's a, you know, in animation, yeah. it's like. But if you yeah, if there's no joy in it, you can. Everybody, the audience can sense and it's not going to get made. So it's like you absolutely need that, you know, and it's just not how so many people go into it. You mentioned the, the Faulkner Scholar earlier. What the fuck is it about Faulkner? I so when when my wife and I were dating, she gave me, I think, as I lay dying mm-hmm. and she had talked about, you know, she's a journalism graduate, like super, super smart. Again, you know, also loves all that kind of different types of comedy, turned me on to all that stuff. I faked liking it early on when we were dating. So I could prove to her that like I was cool sure. when I later was like, what the fuck did I just watch? And now I love it, you know, but like, um, you know, she gave me that book and she also gave me, what else did she give me? But if it's not Sound and the Fury, then it's probably. It was, it was Sound, it was Sound and the Fury. Yeah. That was the other stuff. Yeah. Cause she, she gave me Sound and the Fury first and then she was like, well, if not, you can read as I And as I like, it's easier I, one to read. Yes. The more yeah. straightforward. And narrative. yeah. Yeah, and I started reading Sound of the Fury, and I was like, this is fucking, this is a tire fire. I'm like, is this, you know, and then also, I felt weird, because I'm like, oh, this is like what people do in college, is they read this book, yes. and it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and, but, you know, it's it's like going to someone and talking about how you, um I don't know, how you're like a fan of Captain Beefheart, all of a sudden. Yeah. And someone's like, oh, shit, this guy gets it. So, <laughs> Connect those things. Connect Captain Beefheart and William Faulkner. Well, I mean, I look, I can tell you for me, I, the thing I really always like really thought was amazing about it. One is like the world building of it, that all these books are connected. It feels like pretty special. But specifically, the thing I was very into was the tragic comedy. And that was what I was writing about in college was like, I, you would take these things that I didn't think people thought were funny. Mm-hmm. Like most of the critical writing around it was not how funny absurdly funny the thing was like very specifically in sound and the fury there's a character this character quentin who's in love with his sister you know kills himself and the suicide affects the family but the he can't kill like and it's written not straight but it's like he's doing all these things to kill himself like he puts on these weights to walk into the into the Boston. I yeah, very Harold and Moss. Yes, sort very of. Harold and Moss. Obviously, and he can't. And it's just yeah. like the weights aren't heavy enough, and he can't kill himself. It's like all of those. <laughs> you know, he's like gonna. He's got to kill himself at a very specific time, but his watch has stopped working. Like all these things that I find, you know, very funny. That, but like deeply tragic. I think is what I was always responded to, and I just I found the writing like really beautiful. Why this guy, Mike Lazo, loved it, too, I think came and again, didn't go to college, just like grew up. I think there's something it felt I was also pretty obsessed with the South, maybe at the time, too. You know, it's again why I was like fine ultimately to move there. 
But like, there's nothing feels more Southern. I mean, there's always this one expression I remember. I think it's like in uh, light in August, but there's this one expression where he goes, the lugubrious effluvium. Oh, and I'm Lord. just like, that's the funniest two words. Those are the funniest two words you possibly <laughs> put together. And it also nothing seems like foghorn leghorn or something. I mean, it just sounds so yeah, over the top. <laughs> the lugubrious effluvium. I think they're talking about like candle wax or something. Like, I don't know. It's so funny. And so I do think that there's a, a, an absurd absurdity to it. Uh, a tra- I never, I didn't think I was into it, into it just because I was like, the shit is pretentious and sounds really smart. I really do think like there's something about the almost Dada kind of writing and storytelling and weird words and the, like the actual s- sense of place. That's the other thing. It's like mm. the sense of place, this and this place that he created, the Yaknavatafa County, like this fictional Mississippi place. Is so I don't know. I don't know why, but it is certainly like this weird lightning in a bottle moment that got changed my whole life. Cause I, I don't know if it without that I Well I mean you're talking to a guy who loves beef heart. And again, too, and so, I think I mean I get it. Yeah, I get yeah. I mean, and yeah, it's like it's so funny to compare Fogner to beef heart. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's heavy stuff that requires work, yes. I guess. And, and I do think that there's like a certain saying. amount of adult swim that especially, and by the way, it's like work to, it's not like work to the untrained eye, but it is like you develop a certain muscle. It's a certain language. Yeah. And I think if you show a lot of people, like even early space ghosts, it doesn't yeah. make sense. And I think if you re, if you don't, if you don't recognize the language and if you don't haven't worked that muscle, then it doesn't hit. It doesn't make sense. That's probably the same with Faulkner, to be honest. If like you were to go read, like I couldn't go read Faulkner now, 20 something years later. Do you know, it would be very hard for me. Like I've lost that, mm-hmm. that muscle. And I think, you know, when right. you, when you watch a lot of adults swim and you start understanding, you go, oh, there's, there is this, there's a language here that I'm now understanding yeah. a rhythm here that I get, you know, the really weird shit. You know what I mean? Like I just yeah. showed my son, Xavier Renegade Angel. And I mean, that was like, he has a pretty absurd sense of humor and he likes like aqua teen stuff. And I showed him this show that I made with, you know, Vernon Chapman and, uh, yeah, yeah. uh, John Lee. And he was like, damn, like my son was like, this is a bridge too far. <laughs> Like, I literally cannot understand a word that's being said visually, dialogue. I cannot get this shit. And so, yeah. but I think that you develop that muscle if you like it and it just, it's a rhythm. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a, it's a style yeah. of joke telling. And I think that same with Tim and Eric, like it might hit on a guttural level, but it absolutely might not. But that doesn't mean it's not an acquire. You can't acquire the taste, you know, yeah. through a little bit of like watching. You know what I mean? Well, I think there's also, you know, people love the things that they worked really hard to understand yeah. or achieve. You know, I think like that's why so many people love. Yeah, like like crazy musicians or or bands or you know, I mean, it always I always relates up to music. But like, I think that sort of stuff builds community way more than all of us talking about Jurassic Park being an incredible. By the way, film, I think it's to- right. Yeah, that's totally right. And I think that that was definitely the early success of like Adultsum too. Now look, the early success, and which is a huge part because of us, Mike Laz was specifically buying and licensing the Family Guy, which was like a failed show on Fox. Like if you watch Family Guy right, right after The Simpsons, the Family Guy kind of doesn't make sense. It is weirder. Yeah. It's way, it's way more edgy. You know, they're doing some fucked up stuff. If you like something and you know it's a bit more work or you know people, other people might not immediately get it, Captain Beefheart. It definitely creates a sense of community. <laughs> and I think that's huge. You know, by the way, Rick yeah. and Morty. So many, people, you know, like 
But again, I think it's not so far out that you can't get it. The jokes are all there. It's just, it's a mm-hmm. sense of putting in the work, you know, and I, and, and that it doesn't sort of Im- isn't immediately accessible. I think definitely with, I had never really thought about it, but I certainly think that that is a, that would be part of the success, right? Yeah. And I also think the medium of cartoons, which you're kind of, I mean, you've made other stuff. Mm-hmm. I'll be clear, but like, I think most people know you for the, mm-hmm. the cartoon stuff you've done. And I think the medium of cartoons, there's an absurdity that's attached to it based on us, I don't know, maybe growing up watching like Looney Tunes or something, but there's, it's okay for very strange things to happen in a cartoon and you don't, you don't question it as easy as you would watching live action. Totally. I, I, I definitely, I think that, you know, something about making cartoons is that when you talk to most like network executives and I I find this like, this isn't like, not just network executives, but people, I, I'm sort of an immediate question that someone almost always asks is sort of the raison d'etre. Like, why does it have to be animated? Which I think is kind of a, I, I think it's not a silly question. I actually think it's an important question, but I actually don't sure. think that people understand many people, not everyone, but a lot of people that ask the question of, so why does this need to be a cartoon? Why does it have to be animated? Actually don't really understand the question, right? They're going like, is it, does it have to be, can they go to outer space? Like, why aren't they going to outer space? Can they go back in time? Like, that is often what they mean, right? Is it talking animals? And something that, you know, right. <laughs> talked about basically since I started this and saying, you know, maybe Mike Lazo told me early, early on, possibly. Um, I'd like to attribute to him. Uh, but, yeah, you can also just take credit. But, or, but it could okay. be me, but I, I, it's been so long doing this. But basically was... Um, <laughs> even if it was me, I'll just attribute it to somebody else. Yeah, that's the imposter syndrome shit. Is it? Yeah, but no, there you is go. That, it's in is there. That, um, is that when Bart, when Homer chokes Bart in the mm-hmm. Simpsons, especially in the early Simpsons, like that can't be live action. Maybe now <laughs> it could be because shit's gotten wild. But like then, yeah, I'm not watching. But that no show. one wants to watch it. About. But somehow, <laughs> so it's like that's a straight family show, especially early on. It's like. I burned, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, don't eat the cookies. Like, that's really all it is. It's very domestic, right? It's a very just sort of dysfunctional family domestic. There's nothing. There's no aliens in it yet. There's nothing happening. It's like, but why is that animated? And it is animated because Homer can choke Bart. And that is it. And it is like, you can have a father who is, uh, who is anim- like, gloriously bad as a dad. Gl- that mm-hmm. such a buffoon that if that were done live action, it would either be unrealistic too unrealistic to be funny or too gnarly to be funny right and that to me is like that's a small that's so small that people don't think about it so it's like when you think about making cartoon like what's the why does it have to be there's a lot of reasons for it but i i um yeah yeah it's it's an easier world to enter but i think it it lets us push our minds further than what other things oh absolutely i mean straight up like boondocks to me is like you couldn't like (laughs) the, 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 the you know Early on, I mean, basically, they made uh, they made a pilot, a, a presentation, like a three minute presentation for Fox on the Boondocks before we bought it mm-hmm. and develop and redeveloped it. And in it, the character of Ruckus, who's a real self hating black dude, who ever you know mm-hmm. you know would be a MAGA dude now or whatever. He <laughs> in the pilot or in the presentation, these kids throw a baseball through the window. These like white next door neighbors, and it's and he's like, oh, you you uh, you threw your. Uh, Baseball, your kids lost your baseball or whatever and throws it back <laughs> when it's obviously like supposed to be like a racial in like, like, you know, like, yeah, it, they, they were throwing it through the window on purpose. Right. And it was, <laughs> you know, um, and I was talking to Aaron about it 
the, the Aaron Magruder who created it. I was like, if we make this show, like that honestly, like, is that how it's supposed to go? Because I love this and I love the show, but this feels soft. Like, this doesn't feel mm. like the satire is hitting. Like, if that's what you want to do, you got to tell me. But I feel like there's so much more there. And he's like, oh, yeah, they made us change that for Fox. Like, kids were supposed to have thrown a... And I, this is what we ended up doing, I believe, in the pilot. He said, oh, no, they made us change it. The, the kids threw... The white kids across the way threw a brick through the window. And he goes, wow. oh, kids, you must have been playing with this out back. Sorry. And he throws it back. And you're like, oh, my God, that's so much funny. Like, his delusion of wanting to be accepted is so much, the, the satire is so much harsher and so much funnier. Yeah. But imagine like yeah. that live action, like that would be, it, it would just be so, I mean, again, all bets off in this day and age, but like definitely then it'd be like, that's too brutal. But like it allowed him to go so far. The animation, same with South Park. It just allows you to go so far with the satire and like really cut deep and still have it be like, really laugh out loud which i do don't you know live action has to serve as something a bit different i think yeah or no, do serve I, it differently I agree. what would you say are so someone's like man i just you know i just heard this pod whatever nick weidenfeld's a g um whether they're t- time crisis heads or whatever but like the greatest cartoons of all time you, just give me a list of five i mean or three who cares i mean like Growing up, this also, this is another thing that happened when I took this, when I, when I started working at Adult Swim, because I was like, I don't really know much about cartoons. And, That's and he was like, Mike Lazo was like, so what? And we, yeah. when we talked about it, I realized animation, the way we were approaching animation was a simply a means to an end, is that we could not afford yeah. to make something live. We could, this was the cheapest, this was the only way we were going to get what we thought funny across. This was going to, so it had to be our medium. Like, you know, it, we could do it for a tenth of the price of, you know, going and shooting something live action, getting a set together or whatever. And so my relationship, like, I, I don't have like, not that I don't have reverence for it, but I would say growing up, like the most important thing to me was a show Freakazoid that was a Sunday morning show. <gasps> that was the most important. I was about, that's, that's my show, man. I just grew up, Dude. and that was like through my high school years, like I was just like, that show, I don't know why. That cop was off the wall. Amazing. Just to- he would, uh, yeah. Freakazoid is one of the, is, seriously, is one of the greatest shows ever. And it's a show I will like have found, I would torrent it, yes. torrented it way back in the day when I was trying to find it. You know, I remember I went to the Virgin Megastore in Times Square <laughs> because there, this is, you know, eons ago, yeah. obviously, right when that existed. Cause I was with my buddies and it was late and he was at, uh, we were at his apartment and we saw an ad and it was like the freakazoid things are finally on DVD because they were in like purgatory. And then it was all, so we, I bought the Animaniacs collection on DVD and the freakazoid stuff. And we just rewatched them over and over and over again. That's so, like, I mean, it's, I gotta, I gotta bring, this is one where it's like, I, cause I don't even know where it would be. I just have to watch that with my kid. I just like, I, I hope it holds up, but in my mind, it does. It does. I just, especially him, just like the fact that, he never flies. No. He's he doesn't have any fucking powers, and he's just he's there. And then like the the non sequiturs are things that like I've referenced like to this day. Oh, you I know? love it. Okay, so that's so awesome. You know, because it is like a handful <laughs> of people that would remember that, and I just oh dude, and I still sing Freakazoid. Yeah, Freakazoid. Freakazoid. Like the theme music all the time. Dude, yeah, perfect. It's a per. It is. It. I remember being such a perfect show, and and also feeling like an ex. Like sort of, I think this feeling because I. I 
of extended adolescence with it where it was like like friends of mine you'd crash and like be like 14 or 15 for me because i'm a bit older than you and just like let's put on fucking cartoons and like that was one that like hit i i don't know like so cosgrove so that so that would say that i loved and one of the reasons so it's like i don't wouldn't be like oh and these are the shows i always go back to well i would absolutely say the simpsons that to me is like i started watching it when I was eight years old, I started watching it on Tracy Ullman. Like I remember the shorts and to be able to have something grow up with you is pretty life changing. Like I, I left it for years, but then I had a son who likes to like, he likes when he watches something, he watches it all. So like I've gone back into watching and I go, you know what? Later season Simpsons, people want to hate on it. They're good. They totally hold up. They totally hold up. And that, I mean, if that, even the fact that that's considered a hot take is crazy. It's like, you can hate the shit. You can hate the shit. You can say it lost its way, but it is so much better than most other things that are on. And it, for the most part, still. Okay. I agree with that. You know what I mean? And you, and you watch it through the eyes of a kid and you're like, yeah, there's ups and downs, but the things went on 30 something years and they're still able to like say shit. So I'm like, The Simpsons is my whole life, my whole. childhood on has been a part of my life what are the best i mean top three simpsons seasons i'm not you can't i'm not i I can't pull shit like that i'll tell you i the one of the best episodes of all time and maybe it's like moving to hollywood too well and i know this is not like this isn't that deep a cut but i will say anybody watching this also having just heard a lot about tv and film for a while is the one where they go to make the movie and uh in um Springfield and uh they're making the action film in Springfield and um Nelson becomes the lead and not Bart and like how how oh. having Hollywood come to Springfield just like tears it apart is is yeah. is like so it's impeccable it's perfect so I mean you know I would probably say I still think when I think of making a TV show now I would always say everyone does need to go to season like I mean I would just always go to season 1 you know, season one. Really? Or two. Yeah. I just think you understand even that they opened on a Christmas episode. I mean, yeah. it's just, there's something about the decisions that were made that I think also show you where a show can go. So I would have been, probably go like one to three, like season one and season three. But I know that there's these, like that, these late seasons again, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not like well-versed no, enough no, you're to fine. say it. And so, and I don't want to, and then I don't want to feel like an imposter, but I do feel like that show, when a show can mean so much to you over your whole life, and then you have a kid and that kid wants to watch it, it's like, it's holds such a special place that almost nothing else can, you know, to be eight years old and have something start. And then I would, so that's two. There was a show, and again, I don't know, I haven't revisited it, but it was really, when I started at Adult Swim, there, they had a, they had acquired right before I had started this show called Home Movies. That Brendan Small had done that then, you know, we would make, I'd make the show Metal Wasn't he like with. a channel, channel 21 dude? No, no, he, okay. no, no. He was like a Berkeley school of music. I mean, I created, um, uh, he made this, uh, the show Metalocalypse. If you ever watched Metalocalypse. Yes, yes, yes. So yes, he made yes. Metalocalypse. Yeah, yeah. But that show that was Lauren Bouchard's show who would go on to make Bob's Burgers and all this, like he had a show right. about all these kids making, you know, home movies. And that show to me is it does. It it was like did something with like dealing with being very funny, but also conversational and also emotional. That I think is a very interesting thing that is very hard to pull off. And people try now, and they go, "Oh, this is it, there's no real jokes in this." Like I'm also really anti whatever new wave of like sad comedy, depressing shit. Like people need jokes, <laughs> and the next wave will be like straight Family Guy jokes. You know? 
Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, but yeah. I do think like home movies was a reason that I like I understood like it holds again a place in my heart outside of best of all time. I would put it there because I think it gets so weird because part of me like I'm too deep in this business to answer that question because I'm like I watch these things go. Well, I want I want you to watch it because if you give a shit about like Bob's Burgers or something, you're like, wow, how or you know what's happening with comedy? No, man. You watch e- everyone this. wants to know the thing behind. The and thing. then and I would you're say good. like home movies is it. Then, and I liked, I don't, I mean, I, I will say, I think Boondocks, Boondocks no one's great, ever made man. another show like the Boondocks and the culture has needed one and needs one. And they still have not managed to make anything that satirizes culture that's young and yeah. black. I just, it blows my mind that you, there's not another one that was able to do it. So I think that to me for, it's like very short lived. There are episodes in that, like the Martin Luther King episode where he comes back is like, <laughs> That might be one of the best half hours of TV as far as I'm concerned. They, you know, he's still alive and he goes to McDonald's and sees that he's yeah. selling Happy Meals. Like, it's, it's so good. So that one. And then, um, <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't think I would have said this, except like, again, I think culture is changing and I think culture needs it. I hadn't watched it in so long. I, well, look, obviously South Park. We've talked about it. South yeah. Park. South Park is my, South Park, is my South, Simpsons South in Park that is sense. it. And I think it's the sharpest show in terms of things that are going on that people are talking about mm-hmm. that cause cause you to revisit and change your perspective on it. Yes. And again, being deep in it, the way the show shifts and changes, not just because of the culture, but because of how Matt and Trey want to create like their creative process. Mm-hmm. It's like amazing, you know, like how they, you know, when, you know, they decide to go six days to air and the thing becomes like kind of, you know, they're like, great, you know, what? Like we actually, yeah, on that, I think is the number one thing I would have anybody who wants to make almost anything watch has nothing to do with animation. Just where you're like, there's no one way to make something. There's no, there is there every, every show should be sort of bespokely built around the creative, right? Like the creative center. Mm-hmm. There's not like, mm-hmm. how, you, you know, you can't just like a writing room looks like this and a pu- production pipeline looks like this. It's and you look at six days to air and you see how Matt and Trey have essentially built like pipelines and process and infrastructure around what they do. Like you could give them a year to write an episode and they're going to wait to the last six days. <laughs> right. They're procra- they yeah. will procrastinate. So you have to give them a timeline. Right. You have to tell them this is it. That is works directly into their best mode of creation. And so they built in. Do you believe the best art? It comes from constraints. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Adult Swim is. Uh, yes, I, I think the best. Absolutely. The best rights come. The best art comes from constraints. Definitely the best writing in television and film. I think that there's like two examples. Like I could, you know, I think maybe and maybe it's only because I worked with him. I would say maybe Spike Jones is the only person who's like, give me a, a all an infinite amount of time and an infinite amount of dollars and I'll make something that's good. Do you know what I mean? He's the only person yeah. I know. The only one. I almost, I'm sure there's one or two others that respond to this, but I would say almost everyone else. Literally, Adultsum is created out of us having limitations and us giving limitations because of, you know, how little we had. I think, right. you know, I, you know, helped create the show the for Vice when I was doing Vice, the Jesus and Marrow show, which yes, which to me which to me is a highlight of my career. But I also think and you know, Marrow, the guys and specifically Marrow has talked about it. It was like the best version of that show was the Vice version, not the Showtime version where they had like and it's and it, that's very take. specifically 
because of the the constraints were by design. You know, shooting in yeah. an office, giving them no writing staff, all of that was a design to get the best version of their creative out there. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I think you give, you know, you you learn it's survival mode. You know, the, you will figure mm-hmm. out how do you make the best thing when you're limited. But specifically with Matt and Trey, it's not just the limitations because they have all the money and the, they can do whatever they want. It is, I really believe they... They don't even need to make it. I think that's the thing is like, what's the point when you have that much money now, which by the way, they are smart and they earned it all themselves, you know I mean? But like, you don't even need to make it anymore. So what's the point? No, I mean, I think... And I think that's great. It's pure joy still of it. Even as hard as it is, you get the joy. But you also know that they could could say, we're going to make one episode a year and we're going to take all year. You just know those motherfuckers are waiting to the last possible minute. Not everyone waits to the last minute, but they do. And they go, (laughs) you could give us a day longer. It's not going to matter. You need to tell us. And that's what get, and that's also what drove its, you know, topicality. What changed Mm -hmm. the whole Mm -hmm. thing of it changed the whole, making it more linear. Yes. All of it changed when they did that. But it was also like, guess what, guys? This is the only way we can work. You could give us all six, three months with the writing staff. We're just going to wait to the last week. So let's just create a process. <laughs> and to me, that's the most beautiful thing for anybody creating anything. You know what I mean? Like whether it's this podcast, it's like, what do you need? It's not going to necessarily be what everybody else needs or anybody else needs. What, right. you know, and I think that, you know, you didn't ask, but one of the big problems with, with the way I think you, Holly, you know, the Hollywood infrastructure obviously needs a certain kind of like certain systems and best practices in place to like make sure the money's spent well and shit gets on the air. Right. But Mm -hmm. there is no way, one way to make anything. And I think that's been a, that's one of the problems we see with all this, like people just going, there's, you know, okay, what you need X amount of time, you need X amount of staff, you need to shoot X amount of days. And so, and I think that instead of the, the process, and again, there's best practices, but people going, but what exactly do you need and how does your brain work to make the best thing within a certain kind of budgetarian constraint? Right. You know what I mean? Right. No one talks that way. Or no, I don't want to say no one. I, I'm sure there are people that do. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I, you're, you're, this is all, you're speaking to a larger, I don't know, vibe for lack of a better term. Right. But like, I, I agree. I think because I'm definitely someone who comes from, you know, I love Brian Eno's Oblique Strategies, which for folks who don't know, it's uh, Brian Eno, you know, the producer, legendary, whatever, who had this deck of cards and you would draw from a deck of cards when you basically had writer's block, you know, and then and it would it would cause you to change your perspective. But in a way, if, if you drew the card, you had to do it. So, it, you know, it might be like remove the third verse or something dumb. So it, w- it would force these constraints yeah. upon you, but it, it made it made things exist. I think especially when you're talking about being in an industry where you work so hard and things don't exist and you start forcing constraints to exist is the, is the bigger thing. Because otherwise we're just kicking around thought bubbles all day yeah. and we don't actually get to enjoy or better ourselves from the art that's created. Yeah. And I'll, look, you know, talk a lot about St- Chris Storer and the bear, but it's like, this is a show that's created out of constraints, you know, budgetary constraints, day constraints, like, you know, acting. It's like that is just show that I think you, by the way, one of the, I would say one of the reasons it feels that show specifically has the intensity that it has, you know, the urgency that it has 
is yeah, because is of yeah. how the thing was fucking made. It was right. urgent. They made the thing very, very fast with very little money and very little time. And it's like, you know, this wasn't a show that was a, a vibe, a slow vibey show. It was a show about <laughs> we can fucking we got to go, 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 go. And it's like that yeah. feels like all part of it. And I and I think that you look at that, you look at six days, to, you look at how things are made and the best stuff is made in this like, yeah, is is in in you in unique bespoke ways you know um i mean that's that's how i think a lot of music should be made yeah well i think music tends to look music and artists you know there's there tends to be more room for that i think because you can always just go into your room and make something if you need to like making tv requires so you know and film requires so much money and infrastructure even when it's cheap and i think that yeah it would be great you know i to to look a little more to like how people make music and how can you make some you know make something that feels special to the people you know based on how it, that feels special because of how it's made by the people that are making it and yeah music should absolutely the you you know the stories you hear of your favorite albums you know yeah. always have like usually some very weird thing put around you know some weird unique production process of like yeah we all moved into this weird house or we all you know what i mean there's just more yeah, ready for me to tie this into fashion for someone who's be like, why did no, they talk I mean, about I mean, sweaters? Yeah, let's go. It's all the best like clothing stuff that everyone loves, designers, yeah. you know, icons, whatever. It they had very limited options for what they were going to wear, what they were going to do. You know, we don't. No one's the the only extreme example that people love, but like I'm not going to give this dude credit. Was like the Duke of Windsor, who you know fucking nazi sympathizer first off i'll just be very clear that everyone who loves that guy i get it that he invented you know or or found a way to manipulate to create the whole soft shoulder the english italian thing great fine take that set it aside but like you know i I went nuts being obsessed with cary grant for a while like any other dork and i managed to get in touch with his daughter Mm -hmm. and i was like yo can you explain this stuff to me can you and she basically she was so sweet she was basically like this like there wasn't a mystery. It was what he had. Like you're you're referencing this look. You're referencing this thing. It was just what he had. And 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 so like you know what people love is not so much. And Cary Grant said this as he was you know dying is like it was the it was the person that was created, not the, not the jacket, not the clothes, not the thing. There was a limit, right? There was a limit. And so like when you when you have that limit, you're just forced to exist within it and be the best that you can be around it. Yeah, like. At- Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that the idea, I can't think of anybody. Uh, uh, definitely we got on, Cary Grant, we got Adult well, we Swim, got Cary, it's so, all coming I was, together. I, I just, the way you were talking really reminded me of this article I read like so many years ago, and I cannot remember, don't think it was in Vice, but it was like, it was like uh, Chloe Sevigny on the street, like maybe, mm-hmm. maybe before even she was in Kids. So it wouldn't have been Vice. This is early, They might have been then way okay. pre-Vice. I just, I, but this idea of like, who is this girl who's just like picked up all the like basically put the we- like the most incredible weird outfits together and she's basically it's just stuff I have right and it's like yeah. you make something with the, yeah you make something with the tools you have how rare have I ever been like oh that per- like that person had <laughs> had infinite access to funds and clothing and they're just I mean who gives a shit like I want to see you pull together all your weird stuff from your house and make something. And I feel like that's when like any iconic figure that I've ever met is doing something like that. Yeah, maybe you spend your money on like one piece that you just really love that you, you know, becomes your piece. But again, I can't, I rarely have seen 
<laughs> a celebrity, a person, you know, just somebody with, with, with wealth that is like, you know, like I said, that's, a, I mean, went and went nuts and had great, you know, still had great taste. And you're like, oh yeah, that was sick. I just can't think of it. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. I look, I do look at like, uh, like I do a well-dressed man. I do look at like Will Welch, you know, who, okay. Who, I mean, I've known well, Southern, Southern guy. guy. And I, and again, I think that probably informs a lot of why I think he, who, who I do think now at this point being that, you know, editor of GQ has like a, a lot of, you know, he has, he has infinite access to stuff. Mm-hmm. And I go, all right, mm-hmm. there's this, there's a vibe here. I like that. You know, and I think possibly it's the Southerness, which keeps him within some sort of box. Maybe that's his constraint on some level. Well, and he anchors himself to music. Yes. Before he anchors it, like the, the culture, you know, he's anchoring himself to is music and, you know, people over clothing and design. Yes. I mean, and I, yeah, I love Will, and he, he'd be the first to say that, like, it's not about the clothes. No, and that's where I'm saying, even when you talk about constraints, I think that's a very interesting yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that I, lo- I do, I'm trying to think of anything I've ever liked that was, like, truly, like, maximalist. And I do like maximalism. But, like, it's just where somebody has, like, so much, and they were given every, they were afforded every, you know, everything they needed to continue to, to build. I mean, prep, in a way, was kind of the was built around oh, yeah. constraints. Yes. You know, that's a hundred. Yeah. By the way, that's it. When you look at any of it and if they're fucking sewing it, this six days to air stuff, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. I, yeah, I really do love that. And I think that that's a huge part of, um, certainly my foundation. Um, and I think honestly, like the best kind of TV, right. Is also supposed to be from that, you know, because you're like, oh yeah, we're, we're writing against a deadline. We need to go, you know, Something that happened in television that's pretty interesting with like this binge model of TV is obviously yeah. there's often, depending on who you are, budget constraints, but you know, basically you have to deliver everything, right? Mm-hmm. You deliver everything and then they color it, they, they do everything they need, but all at once. And then they have to air it for like a, you know, the whole drop. The way TV used to be was that shit you were working while the last one was airing. So there was mm-hmm. this like, and I mean, you know, this constant sense of like, you know, like, we did we didn't have time to then just drop it all and again i know there's constraints always but like literally you're like you're writing yeah. to shoot you're right you know it shoots you're writing to shoot that you you cannot miss that deadline there's no making up for that right and i think when you talk about prep you talk about like any sort of yeah i like where this is going i mean snl well, like, was, snl I mean, is the, was also 100 snl yeah. is like the definition of it you know and i think yeah. that you know especially early on when you just feel like yeah you you feel the constraints you also feel the danger of it you feel all of it yeah i'm into i'm into this idea i like this idea i want to <laughs> figure out how do i can incorporate that more into my daily life like, i believe you kind of already do incorporate i know but i like when i wake up in the morning i want to be like well, you know like, this constraint is good you have you, know? you have 24 hours to exist until the next day <laughs> yeah, well, how are you going to make the best of this <laughs> exactly. you're like shit no totally <laughs> but no i think that um you know, we, it is a time where I don't, I don't know if that's like the pervasive, I mean, obviously people are like, I don't get paid enough. I don't have enough money to make this thing that I want to make. And, you know, I, I sympathize with a lot, but I also think that there's this other idea of like, well, then let's change the thing we're making. You know, we yeah. got an opportunity. Let's do this. Yeah. Like it's a, yeah. You know, huh. <laughs> I love I mean, that you're deep in thought on this. I mean, that was, it was very shooting from the hip because I was just like, well, man, this makes me think about this. What made Neo Yokio work? I mean, I like that you say it worked. I would say it's when anyone asks me about the stuff I make, I would say that is probably closest to my personal sense of humor. You know, it was not the most 
<laughs> it, it had a big cult following and I, and I'm really proud of that. I think that what made that work is, you know, that's a show that was created by Ezra Koenig and yep. he, he came in to do, I was making this major laser cartoon and we put him in the cartoon and he was like, Oh, I'm a really big fan of uh, adult swim and the stuff that you, you know, you were making there. And I have an idea and I really liked him and we'd both gone to the same college and I had a lot of the yeah. same sort of, you know, different years, but same reference points. And he was like, I want to make this like very weird show. And it was like partly live action and it was not an anime. But then he was, I was like, oh. why do you like that? Like, what is it that you like? And he started telling me the things he likes about anime and the sort of like, like not how precious that wouldn't have been the word he used, but like, you know, the, the sort of um, almost, I guess, like fetishistic elements of anime and like, mm -hmm. you know, like there's, and I was like, oh, then why aren't we making, that's the thing you like, let's make an anime. And he's so clearly a very good storyteller and good with language. That I think yeah. that what make that what makes that successful to me is that a it's very similar to my sense of humor on a level that I can really work with him. But oh, I yeah. was like I was able very quickly to see what is it that Ezra really can do and how can I bring out what I think are the funniest elements of what he can do. And I think you can feel the joy in it. Like we had the exact same, like I was able to see what he wanted to do, but I also had a similar kind of vision myself. Like it was, we were very aligned as partners, I think on it. And we both found the same things funny and we both had the same reference points. But I think at the end of the day, it was again, sort of my, I, I think it's his vision and it was my ability to help him, you know, sort of clarify it. Like what is it that he's trying to do and get him there, you know? Right. Um, and it was, happened at a time where he was like in between albums and he could really spend the time working on it. And he really knew and cared about anime and, you know, yeah, I mean, um, it's, a, it's a great show. And now I think it's interesting because it's not, you know, obviously it's it's over or, yeah. or not in production. Yeah. I don't know, dark, mm -hmm. whatever you want to say. And people are kind of discovering it that aren't just like people that are obsessed with Vampire Weekend or Ezra. No, no. like, yo, this is a was a pretty amazing show. Like it's a great show to revisit. It holds up for sure. I, I will say, it, I think it was day. very, I, people say this shit when something's not successful, <laughs> but I do believe the ahead show was time. ahead of its time because there were <laughs> like conversations. A people did not know. And it's something I do like about a lot of the work I make. But in this case, because the anime audience is so, I mean, I don't know what would be the nicest. They're just the anime is just passionate, mm. specific. That I think that when we did this, and I really do believe it was not a problem that it was on Netflix, but if it had been on Adult Swim, you would have known it was a comedy. But it was so dry that I think people absolutely could not understand, am I watching, like literally the comments are like, is this funny? We're like, how could you not think it's funny? How, you don't have to think it's funny, but how could you not understand that it's definitely not serious? These are definitely jokes. Whether or not you like them, you think that this character is this stilted and we didn't understand that he's yeah. saying they're, they're having conversations about Toblerones and you don't think we think that that's funny, you know? So I would say that like, definitely like that. And I think it's very strong. Anti-capitalist stuff is like, so like it's obsession with clothing. It's obsession with, you know, the, it just, yeah. I don't think people were quite doing that like in the way where to me, it's it would probably play better right now. People would absolutely understand some character constantly talking about brand names. Well, I think like, a, a lot of people have gotten into it just from memes. Yes, no, know? it was a, it was definitely like heavily like a big meme show, which we didn't even plan yeah. on because memes weren't really a thing. Yeah, it was like definitely. The, 
but we wrote it with like that intention of like every line. Look, my favorite movie is American Psycho. And I think that that to wow. me and Ezra liked it, but he wasn't like obsessed the way I was. I was like, I do want this show to be American Psycho. This every line needs to be totally clear and stilted and funny. Like every line alone, like, and I do remember, it's like you could take every single line of American Psycho and out of context is very unique and specific. Every single line. There isn't a line that in the whole movie that doesn't feel like a meme already. It's so, um, it's fetishized. Every line is so fetishized. There's no shot where someone just is like, okay, see you later. Not once. It has to be, I have to go return some videotapes. Like every single line, there's no, nothing casual about it. And to me, that is, if I'm not saying what is successful about a Neo Yokio or why, but I think that it was like all of that coming together. And I do feel like that's what allowed for like the memification of it was that every, there is no casual see you later. I was like, I did push. I was like every single line that, you know, you write or in the movie that we write has to be <laughs> overtly specific. No one can yeah. ever say goodbye. <laughs> or hello. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And I think, you know, it makes me want to rewatch the entire thing now i mean it's because it it definitely holds up especially all the clothes stuff i mean in in a lot of ways i don't know i'm not saying like that's you know because a lot of people like it's it's a show almost like i think you should leave early on to where people like i don't really get this but then all my cool friends really get it so i guess i'm gonna get it you know and yeah and then you end up getting into it like maybe fake at first but <laughs> well by the way no no it's, but by the way it's so funny that you describe it that way because just like adult swim i think it definitely had like its own language and rhythm and tone that i think is not meant to be off-putting it is just yeah it is it in, requires a certain amount of if not work just like you need you know it is it is a little bit of time and i think i think you should leave is very similar it's like you have to sort of it's not an necessarily an acquired taste but you have to open yourself up to that the kind of rhythm and joke telling and the yelling and the pace eric andre very similar like you have to open yourself up to it and and in its own way in its sort of slower way i think um uh neo yokio needs it i mean i think of this one line as i wrote all the time which is when you know the character falls in love with the big pop star sailor pellegrino and he and he's he tells his robot because he doesn't know any of her music, even though she's so popular. And he and he just says, "What? Like, play me a song." And he's like, "What do you want to hear?" And he's just play me the most popular one. And so he plays it. And then later he says to someone, "He's like, do you really like her?" And he goes, "Are you, are you a fan of her music?" He says, "No, I'm a fan of her success." And there's something <laughs> about that. I'm just being a fan of, in which I figured is very real. But there's like little things like I'm a fan of her success. Like I don't like what she does but i love that she's successful i don't know there's yeah. something very it's so per, it's so perverse i that show i really it is the closest to like i could watch that shit even though i was involved in it, i could watch it all the time i mean this is this is a fantastic conversation but nick thank you so much for your time it, w- it was great hanging man i right, man i uh i loved it i mean we just spent my whole evening together yeah, there we go there we, there we go. go all right i'll see you man all right peace Okay, that's it. You've been listening to Blamo from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for tuning in. If you like the show, do what you do when you like stuff. Leave reviews, tell friends, you know, whatever that is. Just, you know, spread the vibes. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lal and our music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. 
If you want to get deeper into the Blamoverse, join us on Patreon, where we have exclusive shows, bonus episodes, and the world's award-winning number one greatest Slack community. Thanks again for listening. My name is Jeremy Kirkland. See you soon.